From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. There are failures now and always have been, and the question is whether the resilient capacity of the country is still there. Hello and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am extremely excited about this show. Uh, when I think about the folks in journalism who I really admire, who I always make a point to read, but also who I think, when thinking even about my own career, who I'd like to to be more like, I always think of James Fallows. He and his wife, Deborah Fallows, uh, James is at The Atlantic, Deborah is a linguist and writer. They are better than virtually anybody else in, in the industry at always going and finding the story, at moving, at changing, at going to the place where the next thing is and immersing themselves in it. So that what they write, what they do, it always has the quality of experience and of immersion and of wisdom. Um, there are a lot of very good smart writers, but there are not all that many wise writers. And and the Fallows have always been to me wise writers. Their new book is Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America. It is a book that is trying to track an American reinvention, as James puts it, uh, a reinvention happening at the local level, at the metropolitan level, and being missed as we push our attention to the national level. I'm going to say two quick things about this interview, and then we'll get into it. One is that a lot of this interview at the beginning, and I really enjoyed this, is about how, is about the meta project, is about the ways in which they have gone to find these stories, about what the narrative is that our towns fits into. And and I really, really, really appreciated their openness on that. The other is something that I think will come through in this, but we didn't say explicitly, but that I would like to say explicitly. If you feel burnt out by national politics right now, if you look around and you just want to recede, if the whole thing just seems like a shit show to you because it is a bit of one, think about getting involved in local politics. We spend, and I say this as somebody who covers national politics, we spend too much time. We spend a disproportionate amount of energy covering national politics. And the amount of energy that goes into supporting national campaigns, I do not want to say one shouldn't because obviously the presidency is incredibly important. Congress is incredibly important. But how much more energy we give that than a lot of local political questions and campaigns, given how much of an effect we can have locally, it is out of whack. 
and often getting involved locally where you can make so much of a difference and where it is so much easier to, to, to see the effects of what you're doing on the community around you, it can be really inspiring. It, 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 can, it can heal your feelings about politics. So as you listen to this, if you are thinking about a way to, to take action in it that is not moving all around the world following stories, maybe, maybe your life does not uh, accommodate for that. Think about the question of whether or not you're as involved in local politics as you could be or as you actually would like to be, given given that you're somebody who listens to the show and cares about these issues. With that said, as always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with your feedback, your guest suggestions, whatever it might be. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is James and Deborah Fallows. So I wanted to begin with something that, that David Brooks said about the two of you and your career. He he wrote about the Fallows question, which he said he likes to unfurl to people at dinner parties, <laughs> which is, if you can move to the place on earth where history is most importantly being made right now, where would you go? And, and that question comes from the fact that that you both have had an unerring sense of where the big stories were and uh, and the willingness to actually move to cover them. So I wanted to see if you could... Give me a little bit of that story of your history. In your narrative of your own lives, which stories have you gone to cover and why? So, Deb, would you like to lead off or me? Um, I think we're going to have different answers to this because Jim has been in pursuit of the story, and I have been in pursuit of getting away and having the adventure. Jim has always been the journalist, and and I've been someone who grew up in the Midwest and as. Other people from the Midwest would recognize it's, it's a great place to grow up, and it's very easy to want to leave and go out to see the rest of the world from there. So that, that's my kind of starting perspective. And, and my part of the story is I, I guess I should, should note that we are speaking now in the springtime of 2018, and it was just at this time 50 years ago that Deb and I met on a blind date in college, and we were both 18. And we've been together essentially ever since then. And it's been a yin and yang, basically half the time since then. We've been, or a little more than half the time, we've been in D.C. We came back here after we finished uh, finished graduate school, after I finished graduate school in 1972. We came back to D.C. for a couple of years. Then Deb thought it was time to go, so we went to Texas so she could go to graduate school in, in linguistics, and I started working with Texas Monthly, then back here, then away to Texas again, then to Japan, then to uh, Seattle and to Berkeley, Mal- Berkeley and Malaysia, and recently starting 12 years ago to China. And I, I guess for the first sort of forced expatriation from D.C. from my perspective was after I'd been here two years into a journalistic career with the Washington Monthly, and Deb said – I don't like it here. It's time to go someplace else. So we went to Austin then, to the University of Texas, and that was the beginning of a sort of an enforced but actually very important and valuable um, you know, sine wave type of DC and someplace else, which has opportunistically let us be in East Asia and the West Coast and China, and it's all been interesting. I'm, I'm going to um, lay my cards on the table here and say that I have been in many conversations with um, my wife, with other young journalists, talking about the f- the way that the two of you have done this over the years. And because people get trapped, you you're doing well in D.C. or you're doing well in New York, wherever you might be, and you know you have a bunch of sources and the story is still there. And it's hard to pick up and, and, and move to something else. So when you went to Japan because Japan was on the rise or Seattle where, as I understand it, Jim, you worked at Microsoft for a year in one of the early periods of, of the technology rise. What was it like to say, OK, um, we're going to try something 
different for a while and, and, and take the risk? Or did it not feel like a risk? So I, I will give my version of this, which is there's an inevitable and foreseeable but always really surprising feeling of what have I done with my life when you end up someplace uh, that is just where you don't have any tendrils of connections and there's nothing. Every, you have to sort of start from zero. I remember that the first time very clearly when I'd worked for two years for the Washington Monthly. It was you know just after the Watergate time. There were all these sort of next steps I was going to take in D.C. journalism and it was time instead to go to Austin, Texas. And I remember the first week I was there on 2101 Highgrove Terrace in Austin thinking, what the hell am I doing in Austin, <laughs> Texas, where I've never been? You know, after a while, we thought, oh, Texas is this great place. It's it's where America's future is being uh, recast. But but every time we've been someplace, it, the first while, there's this shock. And I, I remember doing a report for NPR after we were living in Japan for a couple of years, where we've been every two or three years of our life, we've moved. And I said there was a kind of there's a bittersweet yin and yang balance about life itself that comes from this where on the one hand, your life seems longer because you just have more experiences. We have imprinted in our mind what it looks like in Malaysia, what it looks like in Shanghai, what it looks like in, in Yokohama and all the rest. On the other hand, you, your life is filled with these sort of intermediate um, deaths where you move someplace and you start over and you have no connection. So it's been uh, our, our, our line of work, I say our because we both do it, has allowed this and it's been invigorating, but it's uh, disorienting at times. Deb. I think that the first time we did it was did this really, really moved away was probably the scariest. It was in 1985 and we had two young children who were five and eight at that point and we moved to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And the arrangements for this was were done by postal service because there was no internet and we couldn't make phone calls. So we, we kind of sent some letters back and forth. I looked at actual guidebooks to figure out what kind of hotel we might live in at the beginning. When we landed at the old airport, Subang Jaya, I think, airport in Malaysia in the middle of the night with these two little kids, the airplane door opened and we heard these drums beating in the background and saw little kind of bonfires <laughs> off in the distance. <laughs> and I mean, our kids looked at us and like, mom, dad, what, <laughs> what's going on here? Where are we? Where are we? Um, it all worked out okay, but it was, it was really starting out with, I think, a sense of, well, what can really go wrong? And this could be a great adventure. Um, so, you know, it was a great adventure. I mean, we, we found a hotel. We found a place to live. We stayed in Malaysia for two years. Everything worked out. It was a tropical paradise. The kids loved it. We all loved it. Then we went on to Japan. And jumping in with both feet, um, it, it wasn't really – I don't know. There's – Well, you know, there is, there is a condition precedent to this, which we've forgotten, which was our honeymoon on a work oh, camp true. in Ghana. So we, we're. Uh, I'm sorry. Your honeymoon <laughs> where? Honeymoon yeah. in a work camp in Ghana. And the short version of this is: I was in graduate school at Oxford. Deb was about to graduate from college. Uh, there'd been like a four-month-long postal strike in England then, so we couldn't sort of write to anybody to figure out what we we're going to do in the summertime. And so we saw we were freezing cold in England. We saw these posters for "Have a free summer's work in Ghana." 
So we thought, well, why not? So we got married in Oxford. We took this Ghana Airlines overnight flight to uh, to Accra and spent the next two and a half months uh, as labor camp people in Ghana. So I guess that was actually – that was the yeah, beginning. This is something what, I what would not recommend. What form of labor did you Definitely. do in Ghana? Um, but, <laughs> what, what was the labor you were doing in Ghana? <laughs> Oh, we were building schools? Yeah, we were like making bricks by hand out of sand and then carrying the bricks to where the school was being made and then making the school. And we were, we got our rations. We got like a boiled egg twice a week and a tin of sardines along with just kind of the gruel we had. And we bought something called grass cutter. We bought like a share a, of the grass yeah, cutter. So a grass cutter is like a dog-sized rat that is indigenous to Ghana. And it was a uh, – <laughs> At the time, tasty source of protein. So, 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 uh-huh, please, Deborah. <laughs> so after, after that, you know, everything seemed easy. Definitely, we've made some mistakes along the way. It hasn't always worked out really well. That honeymoon in Ghana was probably the first mistake, but we survived it, and it left us with this huge sense of adventure. That thought, okay, we'll just plan a little better the next time we do this. <laughs> And and that all worked out. And the, there, I must also say there was has always been, at least for me, a push factor out of Washington, D.C. As all of your listeners know, it's a very political town. It's all about where you work, how much power you have, um, what's your day job, who do you know, things like that. And um, I didn't have a day job for a long time, and I didn't have any power, and I didn't know anyone except... Well, I knew my neighbors who, who were the normal in my life. So I found it an easy place to leave, um, and that was the push factor. And then the pull factor was the whole rest of the world out there just waiting for us. So recognizing in this conversation that not everybody can can do what we're talking about here. Some people have jobs that don't allow them to work remotely. They have you know children or family members who need care. They're, they're all kinds of things that are wrapped up in these decisions and I don't want to I don't want to suggest that, that that this is easy for anyone but a lot of people have lives maybe where these decisions could be made but for instance to say we're going to take our 5 and 8 year old to, to Kuala Lumpur that you know well they're in school and you know they have friends here and I'm curious what what was the conversation in your house that led to the decision to 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 move to Kuala Lumpur not what was it like when you got there but what, what, what brought you there? And James, if you wanted oh, to take that yeah. first. So, yeah. so I, I think that the, the way this first came into our mind is that uh, Deb's parents had been small business people in, in the Midwest. And Deb's father had some early health scares, so sold off his business when he was only about age 50 or so. And they thought in the years they had available, they would also get some adventure. And so they joined something called the – uh, International it? Executive Service Corps. It's yeah. kind of like a, a Peace Corps for older retired business people. And, and so they huh. lived, lived in Korea for a while, advising some little factory in Korea. And then they were in Indonesia for a couple of years. And so when our kids were in the early 1980s, when our kids were very little, we parked them with my family in Southern California for two weeks or so. They're just toddlers and babies and went to visit Deb's parents in Jakarta and traveled all through Java. We thought, wow, 
this is really interesting. If, if For any of your listeners who have ever gotten off an airplane in Indonesia, the second, again, the airplane door opens, this the, the air suddenly is 99% humidity and the smell of Kretek clove cigarettes just permeates the entire world there. We thought this is interesting and the, the gamelan music there. So we thought the next time we do one of these expatriations, let's go to Asia. And we thought that the next stage was where would be a place to live? And we heard that Kuala Lumpur, more or less by putting a pin on the map, would be a place we could live, unlike Singapore or Bangkok or the Manila or Japan, where we'd been, because it was a nice, cheap place. And so I traveled from there. And so, Deb, what's, what am I leaving out? Yeah. And so the planning to get there was when we were really excited having been to Asia for the first time to see my parents, we thought, okay, as soon as the youngest kid is old enough to walk a mile, <laughs> that would be the indicator that we could go. And so when he was, you know, four and a half, five, he seemed pretty strong. And we thought, whatever adventure becomes us, he can walk a mile to get to wherever we might have to be. It turned out to be very handy because that actually happened quite often. And our conversation with the kids was pretty much what you do with kids that age. Hey, kids, this is going to be a great adventure. Let's go to Kuala Lumpur. So they were all in. And there's there's another thing that stuck with me all my life, actually. When my dad was older, he said the best thing he ever did in his life was decide to go off to these foreign countries with this international group and see the rest of the world and, and do what he could. So that had always been at the back of my mind, I, I think, at least our minds, that that these kind of adventures will will always be a great experience. There will be hard things, there will be things that don't work, but overall, the over-under will be something definitely worth doing. In, in the new book, Deborah, you have a line that I thought was really lovely. You describe a stagecoach trip Mark Twain took and the sadness he felt upon it ending. And you almost say this offhandedly, but you write that our ending didn't feel as sad as Twain described his, but he was young then and didn't understand yet that you can craft many adventures in a lifetime. Is it that a rhythm emerges to this where having gone on these trips, on these adventures, on these tours so many times in the past, it becomes easier to see that you will do them in the future? Yes, uh, that is certainly true. And it it becomes easier to say that, yes, this will be an adventure. Yes, it will be worth it. It won't always be easy. Um, and looking back as an older person now, <laughs> I think it's, you know, with, with kind of the wisdom of the years, um, this accumulation of experiences that we've had has been has been definitely the makings of a very rich and wonderful life. And and some of the other kind of side points of this is is that it we still get along really well <laughs> after all of these decades together. And I think part of it is that uh, the challenges of doing something like this where we just make it up every morning we get up and, and figure it out for ourselves is that there's not that much room to sweat the small stuff. This is right, Jim, right? We don't get annoyed <laughs> yes. by each other that um, much. A, a great point, Deb. <laughs> Jim, one of the things in the way you've done this over time is I have watched reporters who have gone places and – they have gone and found exactly what they expected to find, exactly what I knew they would find there. And you have a nice line in the book where you say reporting is a process of learning what you didn't know before you showed up. So I'd like to hear 
how you make sure when you go on one of these trips that you are learning what you didn't know before you showed up rather than daisy-chaining contacts you already have and ideas you already have to confirm what you already knew before you showed up? You know, well, of course, we're all victims to the questions we didn't ask and the things we didn't see and the biases we have and all that. But but to me, the exciting part of journalism has always been the occupational excuse to answer questions you'd like to know the answer to yourself. And so when we um, – so, for example, we had first – we first went to China in the mid-1980s when we were living in Japan with our little kids. And we <laughs> <laughs> to get into China in those days, it required some kind of special jujitsu for a visa. So we became delegates to the World Esperanto Conference. We made our kids learn <laughs> Esperanto, which they've not it's really – It's easy. It's easy, but still it's weird. And they actually felt less angry at us once they met at the World Esperanto Congress in Beijing, a little girl whose parents were Americans who'd moved to New Zealand and they only spoke Esperanto to her at home. Her native and only language was Esperanto. So she suddenly, was unique. Huh, yeah. so <laughs> suddenly, our kids felt less aggrieved at, at us. But but it, it, so so my my point is we we'd been there starting in, in the mid 1980s a long time. But we I didn't feel as if I had any sense of how to feel about China. So starting about 15 years ago, when as you and I have discussed previously, as I was doing mainly a Iraq War type of reporting for for the Atlantic, I said what I really would like to know for myself is have have a sense of what do I make of China? What's the balance between hopefulness for it and fear about it and what is good and what is bad? And so it's just to essentially to, to satisfy ourselves of what do we think of this place? And when I we first moved there in the uh, summer of 2006, I did a piece for The Atlantic saying you're allowed one free pass on your first residence in the country saying here are the big questions I have. And I, I listed some of them. And, and I, I think that, that the, best, the best way I know is just to have a big list of the things you're genuinely curious about. Ask people to answer what they view of them. Just sort of triangulate and see the range of opinions you get, what people are agreeing on, what the outlier views on, and just keep trying those hypotheses. So I think it's a, it's a. I would never call journalism science because it's just it's craft, uh, craft and and not it's not art nor science but craft. But it's there's a quasi scientific method of hypothesis testing. You say, okay, this is what I've heard. Does this sound right to you? And you go on to the next day, and you, you make your, and then you share that work with the reader. Deborah, in in this book, um, and I know you wrote, wrote one from China as well. Does your process differ um, as you go and and understand it from a linguistic perspective and and from your own perspective that is uh, differently informed? Have you built something that works better for you than that? Yes, Jim and I work in completely different ways because everything that I know about being a journalist or reporting is from osmosis from having lived with Jim for all these years. I, I see how he does it. I see what it takes. And I, I can see his starting point and all, all of the the questions and answers and unanswered answers and questions and drafts and revisions that don't even make it to paper but just kind of are talked through. So I, I come to this reporting, I actually would never call myself a journalist I, because I have such respect for the profession of journalism and how you all work and think. I think my approach is very different. When we went to China, 
it was an incredibly overwhelming experience where we were just by ourselves. We couldn't make head nor tails of anything like, what is that white substance in the grocery store? Might it be flour? Might it be sugar? Might it be salt? The way I had prepared for this experience, you know, Jim does all of his kind of background reporting. Mine was to work on the language because we thought somebody in this family has to know a little bit of Chinese. So um, I spent a, a year before we went studying Mandarin at, at Georgetown at their continuing ed program because that for me is the way to get my bearings in a new place, to try to, to, try to listen to people and to try to communicate with them in some way. It started out very poorly when we first got there, I thought, okay, I'm ready. I've studied this language for a year. We landed in Shanghai, and my first day or two out on the streets, I could not understand a single word anyone said to me, and I, I couldn't say anything back. It was only, and I thought, what the heck? You know, this teacher's probably been teaching us Cantonese instead of Mandarin. I since found out that the Shanghainese have a completely different accent. It's much more dramatic than than the difference from south to north in the U.S. You know, you got a little drawl going or you got the, the Boston accent, but basically you can understand each other. In Mandarin spoken in Shanghai, there's this complete different kind of phonetic shift that goes on. So you have to cue your whole language to a, a different listening habit. Plus they speak the dialect of Shanghai, which is like as different from Mandarin as German is from English. But to me, the reporting was, was much more observational, being on the street, talking to people, seeing what I would run across, and then what became interesting out of that, rather than Jim's, which was, I think, more structured, going in search of a story. They both worked out because China never disappoints in what it serves up to you. Our standard conversation at the end of every day was, you'll never believe what I saw today. And then we would go on with the stories of, to each other of things that we learned. But my style of looking at the world is, is very different from Jim's. I think it's much more on the sidewalk and with the people. It's funny that, that you say you wouldn't call yourself a reporter because that, that sounds like more reporting than what a, a lot of reporters, including myself, I know do. Um, what is the most linguistically interesting place you've been? Oh, definitely China. Um, we Japan was also interesting, but the difference between Chinese and other and any other language was that I have studied at least was so incredibly different because it's got unlike Japanese, which you can learn the system because it's all it's all endings of of nouns and verbs, and you can pretty much get into just the rote memorization and make your way through. Chinese is very different. While it has a simple grammar, basically no tense, no endings, no no gender, no nothing, the extraordinary difficulty is two things. One, that there are only very simple consonant-vowel, consonant-vowel word structure. So everything sounds the same. And the way you differentiate it is with tones. Of course, everybody knows about tones. And as a newcomer to that language, hearing the tones and replicating the tones and hearing the word, say, ba, for the first time, you kind of have to toggle through seven different versions of ba, whether it's ba, 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 and try to figure out which ba that's supposed to be. <laughs> By the time you're at the end of the sentence, you've completely lost what anything else was about. So just getting a handle on that language um, is a real challenge and, and I think takes 
anybody would say it takes a whole lot longer than most other languages. I mean, linguists say it's one of the five most difficult languages in the world. That's got to be true. Yeah. Just for my own edification, what what did those different ba's mean? Um, let's see. One of them went, you, no, you can, that's you ma. You do, do the ma. ma sequence. Ma, ma means horse. It means, well, it means mama. It means, oh. It means a question marker. Yes, yeah. like, is that right? Yes, no, ma. It means a whole slew of There's things. There's some kind of food that ma means too, like some, so. Yeah, so it's been a while, so. But I'll tell you, there are 21 pages of the word sure in my Chinese-English dictionary. So that's, a, that's proof of something. <laughs> that, 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 that's remarkable. And so, Ezra, but, so Deb is way better on the ear than I am. And, and so I, I concentrate on characters and Deb on, on the tone, tones. The big surprise to me about these tones, which I didn't even try to deal with, is that if you're saying this, the right syllable with the wrong tone, Chinese people, they can't even guess what you're trying to say. And the way I could think of it is, you know, the, the tone and the and the meaning are so intrinsically connected to them. It would be as if somebody gave you a glass of milk that was colored blue. You wouldn't recognize this milk. You wouldn't <laughs> think that's milk that happens to be blue. You would think, what the hell is this? And it's sort of that way with the Chinese, the tone and the meaning is just so connected to them. They can't imagine, oh, yeah, they're trying to say it with a different tone. So how did you know when it was time to leave a place like China or Japan? Ah. How did you know when you were done? So we were in China for three-plus years. So we had almost a four-year stint in Malaysia and Japan when our kids were little. And I think then it was because our kids were getting older, and it's easy it's easier to move with kids when they're in elementary school. It's harder before that because they're too little. It's harder after that because they're getting sort of their formation of where they're from. So we came back when our older son was going into to seventh grade, and I thought I think it was sort of we've been away for four school years. It was time to go back. It just just was a time. I think it, with China. Recently, it was um, well. There were two factors. Yeah. So, so you can go ahead. The, and one that was measurable was our health. Yeah. It's a very polluted country, and um, after living there for about three years, we just started to not really feel very well. It's harder to breathe. It's harder to do exercise. You feel we had a method of eating was that we'd kind of. Uh, survey around. We wouldn't eat too much of the same thing because we figured whatever might be bad would be spread out and we wouldn't, you know, that would be the easiest way to remain healthy. It's really hard to describe this kind of sense of physical malaise that, that we finally felt afflicted with by living there for a long time. And, you know, easy for us to say, all we had to do was get on a plane and leave. We weren't Chinese. So that was actually a motivating fa factor to decide to come home. There is both a professional and a personal thing. The professional thing is there comes a certain point, especially in a foreign country, where you decide, are you going to be an actual expatriate? Are you going to be a China person? Are you going to be an Asia person? And we never thought of ourselves as China people or Asia people. We are Americans who happen to be seeing the world. So I think after a certain number of years, it was time to, to come back. Also, we'd been away from our family for quite a while. Both yeah. of our fathers died while we were gone in China. Both of our sons got married. We came back for both of those events. But we realized it was time to be more present in our extended family's life. So that's probably a good bridge to what you did next or, or with, some, with some punctuation next, 
which is came back to America and didn't just stop in D.C., but decided to make a study of America in a different way. And, and Jim, you wrote in one of your recent pieces that you had a journalistic impulse similar to the one that dominated my years of living in China. That is the desire to tell people how much more is going on in places they had barely thought about or even heard of than they might have imagined. What was the beginning of that impulse? Where did you begin to believe that in the country you lived in, the country you knew, and the country that, in theory, your readers also know, that a massive story was being missed? So it's an interesting question. Let me give just just minor setup. So we we moved back from China in 2009, and we spent much of 2011 there again in Beijing finishing uh, – I was finishing a book there. Then we came back to the U.S., and it was still in the – recovery period from the financial disaster and the great economic collapse. I mean, it was only two or three years into that. And it was then in 2012 that we thought we'd been hearing so much in China about the end has finally come for the United States. Would it seem that way? And so after doing preparations in 2012 and looking for candidate places to go, it was early in 2013 we, we began travels. And I think the first place we were for any serious amount of time was uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And it may even have been at, at that time when I thought, I've never been to Sioux Falls. I wasn't entirely sure of the difference between Sioux Falls and Sioux City, something I would never admit now. I now know they're as different as, you know, Pluto and, and, and Mars or whatever. Uh, but, but we th- thought, gee, I, we spent no time thinking about Sioux Falls. And look at all the activity here. Look at the the advanced uh, GPS-based agricultural technology that's going on here. Look at the way medical innovations are happening. Look at the people who have moved from other parts of the prairie and they think as this Sioux Falls is this uh, place where all the things that, that are – they're looking for, they can have a, a venue for. So I think that, that Sioux Falls was probably the first inkling of, hmm, th- th- this is interesting. Now, this is all before the big political – aftermath of the last year and a half when there was sort of this this sense of, oh, there must be all the misery and 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 uh, despair in the, in the middle of the country. And before that happened, we were having this accumulating sense, wait, if you actually go place to place to place, there is all this interesting renewal activity going on that we wanted to share the stories of. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. 
you can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I've done a fair amount of local reporting and gone to places where something good was happening. And there are stories of optimism everywhere. There are amazing things happening everywhere. America's a big country. And then there's always this question, well, does it scale up? Does it does it change? And sometimes this kind of reporting can have a tendency where a journalist drops in, gets told by the local chamber of commerce and the local deputy mayor and the mayor and some of the local business leaders about amazing things going on, reports on the amazing things going on. And then you think back five years later and you think, well, but did anything really change? So how did you think about separating that kind of reporting, which is ephemeral and, and and relies on the outsider not knowing what can scale and what can't from the reporting that is actually picking up on a trend that is driving forward and forward with some permanence. So, you know, obviously this was on our minds the whole time because y- you can't know. And and there there's a background factor that I'm sure you're aware of, Ezra, which is that studies of entrepreneurs show that they are unrealistically optimistic that they way overestimate the chances of success, which is both heartbreaking because some of them fail, but also necessary because if they weren't that optimistic, they wouldn't have tried in, in, in the first place. And so local boosters, that's a longtime factor of American culture and novels of any period in our history show that. But we tried to find ways to keep in touch with places and to go back there. One An, an early story I did for The Atlantic was about this tiny little town of Eastport, Maine. And I think the title of the article in The Atlantic was The Little Town That Might, saying that we didn't know whether all the activity they were trying to gin up there from tidal electric generation in the Bay of Fundy to having these uh, these ambitious shipping projects to, to send uh, livestock to, to Europe, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't know whether they would, would work. We've tried to follow up with almost every place we've, we've been. And I, I guess the two points I'd, I'd make is that we tried to choose places that were in a whole range of places along the success and ambition scale, as accomplished as Greenville, South Carolina is right now, which is really a, a beautiful downtown and a very effective um, industrial base, to as midway along that as the Golden Triangle of Mississippi, where they brought in a lot of, of heavy manufacturing, to as troubled as San Bernardino, which is right near where I grew up, which is having real challenges. And we have now over the last five years, we've stayed in touch with most of these places. There's only one company we wrote about that went out of business, although its founder has come back with a new one. And there's one mayor we wrote about who got convicted on (laughs) on influence peddling. Uh, But pretty much, I'm not aware of anywhere we were writing about them and then suddenly it blew up in everyone's face. Yeah. So to go back to the beginning of that question, when we landed in a particular town, we started out with those usual suspects, the Chamber of Commerce, the mayor, the newspaper editor, and so forth. 
And then we'd fan out in our own different directions. And by the end of a couple weeks there, we had seen so many different kinds of people from hanging out in the brew pubs, from going into classrooms, from getting invited over to people's houses and talked with their teenagers, from going to the rec center, from just kind of running into people on the street, and people in all different kinds of offices and buildings and companies, that at some point during that, we started to hear the repetition of the stories in that town from a lot of different angles. And you develop a sense that that there must be some truth coming out of this because people are saying the same things from a lot of different, from such different points of view and such different kinds of people, demographically and everything else. One thing I did in some some of these towns was made what you call a word cloud, just making a picture of words that pop out in the conversations again and again and again. So throughout the weeks that we were there, I would kind of write down words that struck me because they were a bit unusual or and they were used so frequently. And in Sioux Falls, for example, the way people describe the culture of their town was it's a big, small town and the word modest and I love Sioux Falls and it is safe, safety, it's a safe place to be, it's an easy place. When that's just a description of a lifestyle or a sense of the culture of the town, but when you hear stories about different ways the town is developing and they say they build their kind of story cloud the same way, I think you, you do finally get to a point where you think there is some truth in this. And in Sioux Falls, we had a big gee whiz factor because we are seeing a lot of these things, entrepreneurial things or how the town embraces its refugees or the collaborations that were going on for the first time. By the time we'd been through five or six towns and had seen the collaborations and the networks and the dealing with different kinds of people like immigrants and, and minorities in the town, the gee whizness went out of it and we thought, gosh, this is, you know, this is some Americanness that's going on in these towns. Um, so it it felt like it I don't know if trend is the right word, but it felt like pervasive of of things going on in in the American culture that we hadn't really known before. And to, to answer, just to add one more part to what what Deb is saying, I think we have to recognize the timing in which we did this, which was from 2013 through you know beginning of 2017, where I think it would have been very different if we were doing it say between 2005 and 2009, because then you know. Play, businesses all around the country were being collapsed by forces beyond their control in 08 and 09 and things were being forced backward all over the place. So we were writing in a time that was of general recovery for the country. And so businesses in general were having better conditions than they had, had before and downtowns in general across the country were being expanded. And I guess the reason why we think this is still surprising for people to know is that the impression at the national level is – Oh boy, our the mood of America is really horrible and curdled and at war and polarized. And we're trying to say, actually, at the sort of cellular level, it still is vital and has is would surprise you in its successfulness. But but again, we did have your caution in mind as we were as best we could while doing the reports. So let me hold on the note of skepticism for a minute because I want to be talked out of it, which is the, there. I think 
reading the book, there are two frames that coexist in it. And I would call one the easier frame and the other the harder frame. So the, the, the easier frame, the one that I found completely convincing that I, and I want us to talk about is the one you just mentioned, Jim, which is America is not what you think it is from watching cable news. Our identities are not as political as you think they are, or at least those political identities are not as all-consuming as you think they are. We are not as bitterly divided as you think we are. That if, if all you're getting, if your impression of the country is coming from reading coverage of national politics, you are missing the story. But then there's this other frame, which is the frame of reinvention, of renewal, of America being on the cusp of something very big. And, you know, when I think about your work in China— that came in the context of indicators that were showing without doubt that that was happening. Their GDP is going up by 7% uh, every year. Their productivity is crazy. They're bringing more people out of poverty than we've ever seen. In America, the indicators are not bad. Um, they've been better in this period. But they're also not explosive. We still have low productivity growth. GDP growth is lower than it's been at other times. So I'd like you to persuade me of, of the second argument. What What makes you sure that what we are seeing is not just – positive churn, but just a churn we always see in the context of a, of, a, of a mature country grinding along, but the cusp of something that is going to become a, a defining part of our story in the next 15, 20, 30 years. So that, that's a good question and very well framed, and I agree with the two ways that you say that, you know, you state the, the argument. I, I wish I had thought to put it as crisply as you just did. <laughs> We're better than you think from, from cable news. But yes, that, that is the first argument. And the second one, I, I think the way we would present it is as a possibility rather than a certainty. And by that, I, I mean the following, that, that – over the decades of reporting and traveling just within the United States, the years we were living in Texas during its booms and busts and living in Seattle during some of its ups and downs and then in, in the Bay Area too, we've learned both to be cautious about what's foreseeable and also to be cautious about real declinism for the United States because I personally have been through three or four waves of this is the end-ism about the U.S. in which four or five years later there was some unforeseen response to that. Um, I don't know that the American narrative 25 years from now looking back on this, this period, the, uh, the period with Donald Trump in office, I don't know that the narrative will be that was a dark time but you could already see the seeds of a new, a new response beginning. But I think that is – number one, I think it is a possibility. And that, that if you were traveling in the United States from 1890 through 1910, you would have seen something like what we're seeing now of locally based uh, labor movements. We're, we're beginning to see with teachers and locally based conservation movements and civic reform movements and the things from California, of course, restructuring the government and the zillion of other local events that collectively were the laboratories of democracy 125 years ago. It is possible that people will look back on the kinds of things we're writing about and say, yes, that's where this energy, this trial and error experimentation, this new possibility was coming from and when national politics allowed that for reasons that are not at this moment foreseeable. The talent was there. The ideas were there. The possibilities were there. I don't know that that will be the interpretation but I think it is possible. And that it becomes more likely 
if that possibility is known. And the fact that people are experimenting with trade schools, a career technical education across the country, and that, that, that politics is not as divisive city by city and in some states as it is nationally. If people knew that, the probability of it succeeding would be larger than if they didn't know that. That's, that's my case. To, to me, Deborah, one of the interesting things in there is that there are two ways of looking at the national politics being divisive problem. One is that it is obscuring attention from this local and metropolitan renewal. And the other is that it is blocking it. It is blocking it from scaling up or blocking it from having the infrastructure to, to, to be what it could become. And I'm curious, which is your view? By blocking, you mean that it's blocking what happens at the local level? Or, or what could happen that, that is a problem with our, our divisive, gridlocked, paralyzed, Trumpy and Trumpified national politics, that it is making people miss this story about America, or that it is impeding America's ability to have this story because local governments are not getting the support they need or cities are not getting the intercity infrastructure projects they need or whatever it might be, that, that, that the national support is not there in order to, to let this – to let the, the innovation and the, the connections that are happening on the local level fully flower into uh, the next great American age. You know, it, it feels to me like there's a third answer to this, that it's, it's more that we just haven't talked about it yet. I think it is flowering out there. I don't think, it's, I don't think that the, the creativity and, and the change is benefiting from national input um, but it it's happening anyway because it's happening on the local level. Uh, the the experimentation in the schools, the the people voting locally to support their libraries, which can then do so many more things than just lend books. Um, the the founding fathers of the town financially supporting the entrepreneurial efforts that are are going on. I. I think whatever is obscured in that picture is because we haven't heard enough about it yet, which is, you know, part of a big part of what we're trying to do in this book is is talk about and describe and let people learn about each other. It would be nice if there were big national grants to support all the things that are going on in in the towns. But People aren't waiting for that because they know it's not coming. So they're figuring out other ways to do things. And there are so many indicators of the beginnings of these kind of changes. For one, for example, millennials or people your age are moving from the big cities to some of the small towns because they see that they are more likely to be able to do what they want and kind of push these efforts um, at a at a lower cost, like kind of um, more fluid environment. So you move to Columbus or Indianapolis or Pittsburgh or Sioux Falls. Jim. Uh, so the uh, the role that Deb and I often play yin and yang style in our marriage is that um, I often am the more uh, <laughs> I, I'm the more downbeat sounding journalist, and and so I agree with what Deb was saying. It also is you know we have to recognize that the possibility of what's happening nationally now can have 
pervasive damaging effects. I think something I wrote, I, I talked about whether the poison of national politics would seep all the way down. For example, we contend that the places where immigrants are in the U.S. are actually receiving them and, and absorbing them pretty well. You don't hear build-a-wall rallies in places where the actual immigrants have, have arrived. But the tone at the national level can empower a lot of the hatred that has always been there. And we've seen signs of that. And that, that, is, that can be damaging in the long run. And what certainly also, as Deb says, a lot of these local efforts, it would be better if there were a supportive national strategy too for conservation, for public spaces, for downtown redevelopment, for libraries. Almost every place we saw where something good had happened, it was a combination of federal and state and local and private and NGO and everything else type of efforts behind them. And the longer the national government is deliberately absent from that effort, the more the potential damage. I want to think about how to phrase this next question because it's one of the big ones I had in the book and and it's a bit of a tricky one to ask. There is a lot of emphasis in the book, Jim, on the difference between the local political identities and our national political identities, our pragmatic, working together, just trying to figure things out, local politics and our divisive, Trumpified, collision-based, paralyzed national politics. You, you guys give in the book the example of two cities that could not be more different in their national politics, but that felt very similar when you went to them locally. And this feeds into a long debate in, in politics in Washington. Barack Obama, President Obama used to talk about this all the time, how our political selves did not represent our true selves, that we were, we were different, better people on the soccer field, at the school, at our church, than when the pundits diced us into red and blue states. And the thing that I struggled with reading the book was whether the argument was that those political identities are false or they, they coexist, or if it's a problem that they've now become so strong that it actually makes sense to write a book rediscovering our local non-nationally political identities. And that in fact, the, the idea this book needs to be written at all is a sign that we should be intensely pessimistic and worried about how much national politics is overwhelming our senses and our perception. That, that is a very interesting way to frame it. <laughs> and if only I, I thought of that question six months ago when, we, when I still was working on, on the last part of the book. And I, I guess the pessimistic part of me, the one who imagines a historian 50 or 100 years from now writing about when the American experiment really ran out of gas, it would be the latter possibility that you raise, that the tribal, poisonous, no compromise, no middle ground nature of national level partisan politics became so powerful that it dwarfed everything else. You know, we, we know that there have been worse moments in our national politics, i.e. 1861 and onward, but this is as pretty bad as you find apart from that. So I can imagine that as a possibility. It struck me that national politics in the places we went had become like something you can analogize either to religion, not in the matter of faith, but of identity, or sports team loyalty. That is, you have two people in New England and you don't know whether they're for the Yankees or the Red Sox. And as soon as you ask that question, then one is on one side, one's on the other. Same in the Midwest with the Vikings or the Packers or na name your UCLA, USC in, in Southern California. Or in Northern Ireland where you couldn't necessarily tell on site in the old days whether somebody was Catholic or Protestant. But once you knew that, they would know whether they were allies or enemies. I 
I think in a way, national politics has become that kind of thing of are you Protestant or Catholic in Northern Ireland because we never asked about it. And not asking about it, we were able to have all these sort of local practicalities and we – the reason we didn't ask about it is as soon as we did that, we knew that the discussion would be over because it would just be the cable news um, – uh, the cable news hostility back and forth. And, and so this brings me to the other possibility, which is that in the long resilient saga of the U.S., which now does, ha does have a couple centuries behind it, the limits of this approach will be seen. They'll be seen through congressional elections. They'll be seen through a new political leader. They'll be seen – you know, it's only been 10 years since you – know, 12 – 10 years since Obama was elected and the very different mood that seemed to be in the nation when, when that was, was the case. So it is possible to me that this current uh, destructive fire will burn out. And that there will be something will replace the tribalism, but it's possible that will not happen. Deborah, as the as a member of the pair, more skeptical, it sounds to me, of the culture of Washington D.C. <laughs> do, do you think that part of the national politics problem is the actual civic culture in that city that that we that that city has become a place that calls forth a bad version of ourselves and then and then political leaders see that version of themselves reflected out with across the country. So you're talking about my hometown now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and mine. I, I, yeah. I live I've lived there for almost 15 years now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I I don't want to put all of Washington into one bucket here. I, I think you have you that we're talking about, you know, the the Political Washington that you hear yes, about on absolutely. cable TV or in the news. There's all the rest of Washington, which is pretty much of a normal place, except it's got this big cloud that it has to breathe through every day. The point of optimism that I would have on this is what we're seeing already, that there are so many new, young, capable people who are getting into political races, that they're not completely they're not discouraged from coming here the old the people who are here are discouraged and they want to leave a lot of the people who are leaving congress but but there are more young people who have the hope and energy and drive to come here to change it that that fills me with optimism that things actually can and will change in this one layer of how people refer to Washington, and that's you know the the only identity that it has. So, I, I think I think life here, we've seen enough administrations. I feel like I'm talking about Mark Twain again. <laughs> Just hang on, it'll get better, or there'll be time for change. We've seen them come and go, and and you do live in the middle of it. But I see more signs of change coming because of people actually getting into the fray to want to make the change happen. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. 
Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So one of your past lives is as a, not just the editor of U.S. News & World Report for a period, but you wrote a great book called Why Americans Hate the Media. And, and I think it's one of the best books of media criticism we have. And one of the things – I went back and reread part of it in, in preparation for this interview. And one of the things you talk about in that book is that there's just a, a, a lack of – humanity in the media, that we get obsessed with the game of politics, we get obsessed with the questions that obsess each other in a way that makes us myopic, in a way that makes the media's conversation not just different from the country's conversation and not just different from the conversation the country wants to have, but actually in certain ways offensive to the country. And when you talk about the ways in which we are constantly calling forth these hyper-polarized, hyper-politicized national politics identities and, and, and missing these stories, has the media gotten better since you wrote that book? Or is, is part of what you're writing now that, in fact, we've gotten worse and, and more distant and more myopic about the country we're supposed to be covering? That's you know. Thanks for for mentioning the book and and it's it looks now that was back in 1996. It seems like a sort of lost Edenic age. Uh, Fox News was just getting started then. Uh, print newspapers were were much stronger. And I think as with so many things, there are parts of the press that are seriously better than than ever. What was the case, you know, 25 years ago, you can find more in-depth information on things. But I think the overall effect of quote the media unquote on public engagement with uh, with politics is worse in two ways. One of them, as you've written about and as we've all discussed, is the economic pressure on local journalism and on state capital reporting. And that is a genuine emergency for the country. And I hope that the plutocrats of this era, that the next thing that Jeff Bezos, if people want to imitate Jeff Bezos, the next thing they could do after the Washington Post is the 20 regional papers or state capital papers to revive them. The other way in which it's gotten, I think, more, has gotten worse is, is the Trump-accelerated phenomenon of just nihilism about the press itself and about the existence of reality and, and, and of facts. There's always been this trend in American history. Before the Civil War, the entire white South sort of embraced the idea that black people were a separate species. Uh, when I was a kid in Southern California in a Barry Goldwater town, uh, there were all sorts of conspiracy theories about Johnson and, and John F. Kennedy, et cetera. So it's always been part of our culture. But I think there is a more substantial block of people who have this whole armament of the internet and Fox News and all the related um, organs telling them that that a that truth doesn't exist, reality doesn't exist. They have their own contend uh, uh, contentious versions of things, and that that is a that's a real problem, and it's a bigger problem than just the United States. It's a bigger problem than just uh, the businesses of the press, and I think this is a next big agenda for all of us in allowing democracy to function. Let me ask you about how two of those things connect, though. You, you talk about the, the pressures on local newspapers and media outlets, which I, I completely agree with. And you also talk about the – it's always been there, but the conspiracy theorizing and the, the just hyper-factual uh, – 
divisions of, of national media. And one of the things I think about sometimes, and, and I want to note, I, I founded an organization that, o- that more or less only does national and, and to some degree international coverage, does not have, a, a, at least at this point, a local division to it, is the fact that so many pe- more people today than was true 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, so many more people get their news from primarily national outlets or from the national arms of, of outlets. So a lot of people get news from the New York Times who do not read the New York Times' New York section because they don't live in New York. Is that part of why these identities, these national political identities are strengthening? Because we just don't have as much of the mix of local, state, and national politics, and instead we're, we're just really, really constantly reinforcing our national tribal political sides? Uh, I think that is that is so. And we've seen in small towns around the country and with some of members of our extended family who are of a variety of political <laughs> beliefs and, and, and outlooks that that it's possible now in a way that wouldn't have been the case even when I was growing up to have a sort of commoditized national political outlook in smaller places around the country, by which I mean when I was a kid in Redlands, California, the only national news media that were available at all were the half-hour network news broadcasts that came on NBC, CBS, and ABC each evening because you couldn't get the New York Times in my hometown. You couldn't get the Wall Street Journal. And so there was a sort of enforced diversification of information sources. And and so, yes, I think you are right. There's a possibility for a – to have reproduced city by city the polarization that we see at a national level and – Part of our mission, too, is to, is to think of ways to, to have offsetting, diversifying pressures. You know, somehow we're contending that when it comes to events within Fresno, events within Allentown or Greenville or any place else, people absorb a range of opinion and facts and are able to make some kind of reasonable conclusion. But you're right that this, there is this pressure towards a commoditized national view. One of the things, Deborah, that you talked about a minute or two ago is that there are different seasons to this, different administrations. It can be easy to get a perspective that is too myopically of the moment. But listening to the way both of you discuss going to these places and being honestly afraid, it sounds to me, to speak about politics, afraid to activate these identities. I'm on book leave and I'm doing a book about political identity. That's part of why I'm thinking so much about this. And one of the things that has been really striking is to dive into the data of just how much more coherent and cohesive and unified cities and states are than they used to be. I found this stat the other day um, by, by Alan Abramowitz that states used to swing 13 points between presidential elections. <laughs> and now they, they basically – how they voted last time is how they're going to vote this time. Do you think that if you'd been doing this project 30 or 40 years ago, it would have been – so dangerous to talk politics on it that that the places be, that you would have known where to avoid it. Do you think that's a new part of this story, even as it it fades a little bit into the background once you once you don't bring it up? Um. So I'm going to buy 15 seconds for Deb to answer that with, with an answer of my own, which is that we do have in Deb's and my lived experience a similar case where it would have been dangerous to to mention bring up politics, which was during the Vietnam War. 
and also during the civil rights movement in the 1960s where Vietnam War, more than that, people were just on entirely opposite sides of that. The difference is, of course, hundreds of Americans per week were being killed then and, and you know, tens of thousands of Vietnamese were being killed per, per month. So it was, in a way, it was a, a more real issue for people to be engaged about. But that would be the closest parallel I would think of. Deborah, over to you. Yeah. When when you use the words afraid or dangerous to bring up the the national politics, at least I felt like we were very far away from that kind of sensibility, that we didn't bring it up because it was distracting. It was distracting for talking about what we wanted to hear from people and for people talking to us about what was really on their minds. There was opportunity for people to bring up national politics themselves to us and and until for three and a half years, until the middle of, well, two and a half, three years, until the middle of 2016, as Jim has heard me say a thousand times. It almost never came up. It almost never came up. It almost never came up. And when it did come up, you could feel the conversation kind of bifurcating. Okay, we're going to talk about national politics or, or let's actually talk about what's going on here and what's important to us and what we're doing and how I spend my time and my my days and my energy. Certainly people vote and certainly they, you know, follow national issues, but people were compelled by local efforts much more than national efforts, whether that's because they gave up on them or or weren't ever expecting them in the first place or felt there were too much roadblocks. I, I don't know, but it, 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 it doesn't feel like that was as big a part of the experience of what we were doing as your question was suggesting. Even that's though a, your question very was very good. <laughs> no, no, no. no. That, that's a very fair corrective. I, I, I really like the way you put that as distracting. Something else you wrote about that I, I found really encouraging, actually, was the ways, um, Deborah, that there's a different local infrastructure, that things that looked like they were in decline maybe 20 years ago or not now. And and I believe it was you who wrote about libraries becoming more rather than less popular and central to civic life. And I found that to be a really inspiring part of the book, and I wanted to to, to get you to expand on it a little bit. Yeah, inspiring and, and honestly completely surprising to us at the at the beginning of, of this journey that I didn't go into a public library until until we hit Eastport, Maine. You know, we'd already been to three towns because it kind of hadn't occurred to me to do that. I thought libraries were all like the place, the one that I grew up with, where you just went in during the summertime and read and got books or did your homework. But the libraries have become across the country this incredibly vast, powerful institution locally of combination of filling in the gaps where gaps have come to small towns, gaps of education, gaps of technology, gaps of of social collection and, and action, that if you go into libraries now, you can ask the librarian, just as you would ask the editor of the newspaper, what's going on here? What are people worried about? And the librarians know all of the answers, and they see it as part of their mission and responsibility and obligation to address those. They're a strong public institution that steps in to educate preschool-age kids, that steps in to offer uh, computers and 
computer literacy to the public at large who can't afford it themselves. It steps in to teach English as a second language to all the new arrivals in town that steps in to offer tango, yoga, lattes, you know, hanging around outside. And when if you're a young entrepreneur starting your business and you don't have an office, you're welcome at in the main reading room to set up shop there and start your business at the library and ask the librarians for help. It has redefined itself and installed itself, the libraries, as these vital, necessary, thriving centers of a community. I hope the message is getting out that that will contradict what a lot of librarians say, we are the best kept secret in town, and they don't want to be the best kept secret in town. They're doing this, all of these kinds of efforts so much across the country. And it was surprising to us, and I think it's probably surprising to a lot of people who think of them as as the old-fashioned libraries. I wonder, Jim, um, I, I think about libraries sometimes as a way in which we've become less imaginative. I, I, It is so hard for me to imagine an infrastructure like the nation's system of libraries being built today, right? Having that conversation where you say, we're going to build a, a, a room, a building in every city in America, more or less, where you can go in and get books for free no matter who you are. It would seem like a waste of money. Well, maybe we should just do subsidies for for people who are poor who need books. Maybe just children who are poor who need books. Shouldn't adults be buying their own books? What Are there lessons of social infrastructure like libraries that we need to relearn or find a new language for at the national level? That's a very interesting question, another very interesting question. And so I have a library – so I'm thinking about the library example, which of course has a long gestation from Benjamin Franklin early on and Andrew Carnegie with his philanthropy and requiring matching grants. He wouldn't give money for libraries unless there was – unless the city would also vote a tax or something to keep them going. So it was a, a long evolved model for the U.S. Andrew Carnegie also wanted to have amusements in his libraries like bowling alleys. And I think some swimming pools, swimming pools, and and, and bars. So I I like this swimming pool bar library you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So so it's. I take your point that there was a – just as you look back on the moonshot and think, gee, those were the days or the interstate highways or the way in which the U.S. ramped up airplane production in World War II and think a country that was capable of that should be capable of more. Or another example, we were just stunned as we travel around the country of how much of the public architecture of 2000 you – know, the 2000 teens was laid down in about three years during the Depression by the WPA. You know, just every place there, yeah. there are football stadiums and there are bridges and everything. There are say, schools. You know, WPA, 1933, 1935, et cetera. So I, I think if there were an analogy I would think of now is – would be the res- restoration – Two things that are happening without realizing without realizing they're a movement. The first that it sort of realizes it's a movement is the downtown reinvigoration movement, which really is happening all over the place, of people recovering these buildings from the late 19th century and early 20th century and making them 
offices and second and third floor residential areas, et cetera. That is happening all over the place and it really is changing the, the, the look of small American towns. The other is something that also came as a complete surprise to me more than libraries is the, the kind of rediscovery of career technical education, what used to be trade schools or vocational schools, where you find really ambitious, both imaginative and physical structures of trying to bring into high schools and community colleges the machinery that will train people how to be robotics maintenance people or they'll how to be skilled construction people or to be uh, health professionals. It is – it's different from building a library all across the country, but it's sort of similar in creating the physical infrastructure in places in Mississippi and in Kentucky and in South Carolina and Georgia. I'm thinking the main place we've seen it and, and in California too to prepare them for for the replacement for yesteryear's factory jobs. I think these skilled trade jobs are what the factory jobs of 50 years ago were. So, so maybe – that would be the little vessel on which I would place my hopes of a network a diaspora of these advanced career technical education uh, sites around the country. That glimmer of optimism gets to a question I wanted to ask both of you. I had a conversation with someone the other day uh, who I won't name because I don't know I'm telling it. And the, the person was saying to me that the problem in America now is that all the gods have failed. Politics has disappointed people and, and they feel like it's failed them. But so too has the economy after the financial crisis. So too has religion with the scandals in the Catholic Church. So too has the technology sector, which was one of the last real spaces of boundless American optimism as, as of a couple of years ago. Now we're in the midst of this massive tech backlash. As you traveled, what did you find that Americans still believed in? What, what are the things that people don't feel have failed them and that they are still willing to even maybe excited to put their faith in? Oh, my goodness. Um, where I see people, what they believe in and where, where they place their hope and importance, I think are, are partly on themselves. Americans are very creative and strong and believe that they can do something by themselves, start something, go somewhere, be someone, um, and it, it doesn't have to be an institution or it, it doesn't have to be a hero. I think that Americans also rely on each other in a very strong way, a sense of collaboration across all kinds of boundaries, you know, students with um, powerful people with institutions that can support them, um, with neighborhood communities who will work with them. A, a sense of reliance on each other, I think, is a very a strong, heroic compulsion that people feel now. And and I have, in addition to, of course, agreeing with Deb in every de- detail of that, I'll say that, that my, my I have a different perspective from from your unnamed friend in general, which is my understanding of American history is that things have always been failing, that there have been financial crises every 10 or 15 years. There were you know, gigantic civil war. There have been my own mother had an extremely difficult upbringing during the Depression. Um, it's, you know, it, it has been the story of this country is of institutional failures repeatedly 
and the how they balance with imaginative opportunity, hope, et cetera. It's always been a struggle. In the last, since, since the election of our current president, I spent all my time reading the fiction of the uh, late 1800s. I worked my way through the entire oeuvre of Theodore Dreiser, which is all about crises, failure, disappointment, corruption, et cetera, and is, is, uh, is, is a, a worthy battle. So I, I think that there are failures now and always have been. And the question is whether the resilient capacity of the country is still there. So that's actually a great bridge to to the final question, which I always used to end the podcast, which is I tend to ask guests to recommend three books that they've read that have influenced them that they think that the audience should read. But since there are two of you, uh, I, I will limit it to, to, to two each. And, and Deborah, if you'd like to start. Well, with respect to this, I, I tend to like to read books that are um, either of the place or of the moment where we currently are. When, when we were in Malaysia, I was reading lots about colonial life. When we were in China, I was reading about ancient Chinese life. While we're, we've been doing this project, I, I really enjoyed going back to some of these earlier kind of lesser-known adventure stories of, um, of Mark Twain and, and the journals of Lewis and Clark, which aren't really very fun to read because they're, they're like someone's diary and, and list of um, grocery shopping. <laughs> but they were views into the country at very different stages of our country, but we were covering the same territory and seeing the same places. And probably one that I, I guess I'd have to recommend, although it just seems like such a, such a slog, is Tocqueville because of uh, the way he observed the country a long time ago. And we could see the same resonance in, in so much of what we saw with how Americans just were at heart and how they conducted themselves at heart and the the way they got together to do things seemed surprisingly true. And just seeing the continuity from from those old kind of dusty writers through to now, I found very educational. And my two, one will be uh, a very familiar one that I know you've talked about, which is uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses Grant. It's a, a biography that both changes one's impression about the man. I'd always have sort of the di- dismissive idea of Ulysses Grant, but but a wonderful picture of the man and also of the struggles the United States, United States has gone through, which have great resonances from from that era to to now. The other one I'll, I'll do is I will uh, go back to my Theodore Dreiser uh, reference. I think that that Theodore Dreiser is remarkable that somebody who is as terrible a writer as he is sentence by sentence can be arguably the great powerful American novelist of just portraying the reality of American life in its aspirations and its humiliations and its pathos. And I would be uh, – I'll, I'll sort of bifurcate this to say either Sister Carrie, which is something that could have been plucked from the headlines, as they say, about this sort of financial rise and ruin and and gender inequality and deception and everything else, or uh, An American Tragedy, which is a really, really long book, even longer than the, the Grant biography, but to me remains – the central American novel of class, of ambition, of idealism, of deception, of 
punishment, law and order, of the role of religion, of the role of migration, of uh, just uh, – so I, everything you want to find was there almost 100 years ago in American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser. Deborah and James Fallows, thank you so much. Thank you, thank Ezra. You. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you to the Fallowses for being here. Uh, that was an incredible pleasure for me. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed it too. Thank you to you for being here. Thank you as always to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, and I am recording out here at UC Berkeley. So thank you to Topher Ruth for engineering. Uh, we'll be back next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything, and now everything is data which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com VIYA.